Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome. I'm Michael Morgan, host of the 2023 Alzheimer's World Summit. And it's my great pleasure to introduce to you um, Dr. Audrey Wells, who's a seasoned sleep medicine physician and personalized mindset co coach. She's on a mission to help people with sleep apnea get fully treated without sacrificing comfort. She offers a comprehensive library of self-directed courses, a group coaching program, and a private Facebook community. And there are free educational resources and more on our website, supersleepmd.com. And uh, Dr. Wells, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Michael. Happy to be here. Um, why don't we start with some of the basics since this is such an important question. Why is sleep good for the brain? <laughs> oh my goodness. Sleep is uh, not only good for the brain, it's absolutely essential for the brain. Um, I like to say that sleep is a fundamental biological need and you can fight it, but you will lose 100% of the time. And the way that you lose is by development of uh, physical disease or mental disease. And I think that underscores the importance of sleep. Uh, one thing to point out is that with just one night of missed sleep, it will almost certainly destroy your ability to function well the next day. And that's not true for anything else like food or water or shelter, um, except in a Minnesota winter, as you right. <laughs> might yeah. know. But the absence of sleep, compromised sleep, really has uh, terrible negative effects on us. So sleep is absolutely critical. You know, and funnily enough, I just saw something on Netflix or the Smithsonian sound, uh, channel being a former pilot, and they were reviewing how a couple of pilots, you know, there's mandated sleep periods. Mm -hmm. And it turns out in a small uh, jet that crashed, both pilots were sleep deprived. And they had accumulated over time. They had some adequate sleep for eight hours, but they had accumulated about a week of lack of sleep. And the results were catastrophic. Yes. So that's, you know, just a, a pretty vivid example of like, yeah, you know, you know, you need to be alert to, to be able to function. Right. I don't know if you know this, but the Exxon Valdez disaster, Chernobyl huh. yeah. and, it, and the nuclear catastrophe at Three Mile Island all had sleep deprivation in common as factors that contributed to those problems. I did not know that. I'm not surprised, but I did mm -hmm. not know that. So that's another case in point. Yeah, it's like, I know when you're piloting myself, when I used to fly, if you're a little tighter, you can feel it because yeah. you're just not as sharp. You'll miss, as pilots say, you'll miss switches. You just miss things. And that's not good if you're flying a plane with other people in it, right? So, yeah. Now, here's another uh, point that we've discussed. How does sleep change with normal aging? First of all, that's a, that's a really good uh, point to discuss, I think. Yeah, I, I think this helps to dispel the myth that uh, sleep looks the same when you're 65 compared mm -hmm. when, to when you're 25. Mm -hmm. So we know that um, sleep changes across the lifespan and it changes more in the infants and toddler age range. But from young adulthood to elder adulthood, what the main things that you're going to see are a reduction in non-REM three sleep. This is also called slow wave or deep sleep. And it happens mostly at the beginning of the night. Another thing that you'll typically see as a person gets into their fifth, sixth, seventh decade is a 
sort of lighter sleep, a more uh, a sort of lower propensity for arousal uh, threshold at night. And so sleep can become more disrupted. And, you know, historically, um, this is, this has been borne out in research studies. And I think too, now that more sleep disorders are recognized, that can partially explain why sleep fragmentation is so prominent among elder individuals. Now, this may be a myth, this could be like Mythbusters, but you know, my general, what the public generally seems to understand is that you're younger, you need more sleep. And as you get older, you need less. You know, mm -hmm. I've heard figures like maybe six to eight hours for a younger person as, and as they're growing, maybe when you're older, plus 50, 60, 70, maybe six hours. So since you brought that up, could you address that in terms of sleep interviews? Just curious about that. This is a really insightful question, actually, um, because it's not that the amount of sleep a single individual needs changes, but their tolerance of sleep deprivation changes. So when you're a younger person, you tolerate sleep deprivation a bit less. You'll have a slower reaction time. You'll have more problems with memory uh, and concentration as a result of sleep loss. But as you age, you tend to tolerate that better to a certain extent. Um, and, you know, just to address another minor point, eight hours has typically been held up as the amount of sleep that everyone mm -hmm. should desire to get. But the truth is this is a highly individual figure. How much sleep do you need varies between individuals. And more often than not, it's going to be around the seven hour mark, not quite as much eight hours. Uh, some people are long sleeper sleepers and need nine hours, but more commonly somewhere around the seven hour mark, uh, would be good for healthy sleep to rejuvenate most individuals. And I want to kind of explore some of the different variables that might impact one of those which is an area of your specialty, sleep apnea. And so what, what about sleep apnea and the treatment options, that particular piece, for example? Sleep apnea is a super common condition. Um, at this time, there's, it's estimated about 30 million people in the United States have sleep apnea. And I'm talking about the obstructive type where you choke off your airway and then drop your blood oxygen levels as a result mm -hmm. of not breathing. And then your sleep gets disrupted because you have to wake up to gasp and start yeah. breathing again. So 30 million people in the United States are affected, but unfortunately, 80% of people with sleep apnea are undiagnosed at this time. So it's worth noting that the disease burden far outweighs the capacity in the medical delivery system. Mm -hmm. And what sleep apnea does is problematic for two reasons. One is it disrupts your sleep. You simply can't stay asleep if you're not breathing very well. So mm -hmm. sleep cycles get interrupted and you're not accumulating as much healthy sleep as you need. The other problem is that sleep apnea is a breathing disorder more than it is a sleep disorder. Mm -hmm. So your oxygen levels drop during sleep. They're going up and down, up and down throughout the night that increases inflammation in your body, that interferes with your sleep, as I had mentioned before, 
it triggers inflammation and a stress response in your brain. So um, the normal processes that need to take place during sleep simply don't happen as they should. And that makes sense. So is there something, uh, we've talked a little bit offline about this, like treatment options available, because when most people think of sleep apnea, they think of that mask, Yeah. you know, and then there's pros and cons to that. Uh, just out of curiosity, how have you approached that in terms of maybe options for people to approach that? I think my frustration level has been just as high as people who have been given the CPAP and can't use it. Right. So I want to back up and say that in my opinion, the idea of getting a CPAP machine may block someone from even getting evaluated for a sleep disorder because mm -hmm. they think that the end of the path is going to be the CPAP machine. And most often folks will do this. They'll put their hand. I don't want this mask right. on my face. Right. And I want to say that no one in is ever kind of, um, forced to accept CPAP. I want to really empower people to get good information about their sleep so that they can make an informed choice. And that can be really empowering when you're thinking about how to treat your sleep apnea in order to preserve your health. Uh, CPAP is the gold standard for sleep apnea treatment, but it is my stance that it is simply not for everybody. Um, in my work as a sleep medicine physician, I worked with people on many levels to find different treatments or combinations of treatments that would be more personalized and more palatable to them. So CPAP is the gold standard. It's simply not for everybody. Well, I think that's important for people to understand. There are some options and you're very compassionate in the way that you pose that. So that's, thank you for sharing that. Now, uh, before we even talk about Alzheimer's, there's other, some other concomitant variables. There could be inflammation, which you said, if people can't sleep as well, that can trigger that. There might be people with other conditions. Maybe, I don't know if diabetes has to do with it, sleep apnea, cardiovascular, how do all those factors tie in with that individual approach to looking at sleep and how to approach it, if that makes sense? Yes. I, normally when I uh, see people to talk about their sleep difficulties, they will come in with symptoms and also a medical history that has the potential to interact negatively with sleep. And so I'll, I'll highlight just a few examples. Um, high blood pressure or hypertension is known to have a bi-directional uh, relationship with sleep apnea. In other words, having hypertension is a risk factor for obstructive sleep apnea and having untreated obstructive sleep apnea can make your high blood pressure harder to control, necessitating more and more medications. Same is true for diabetes. Untreated sleep apnea increases the risk that you'll develop diabetes or makes diabetes harder to control. And the presence of diabetes is a risk factor for obstructive sleep apnea. So we're looking at these bi-directional mm -hmm. uh, uh, medical conditions that aggravate one another. Therefore, it's really important to get down to the root cause of the problems and start eliminating that as, um, as part of the health picture. And that makes so much sense. It's interesting that in a lot of things in functional medicine that we talk a lot about in the summit, that it's interactive, bi-directional. 
and interactive, uh, not to get too much in the weeds, but I'm curious how obstruction of sleep, so to speak, might exacerbate diabetes. I'm just curious of the biomechanics of that, if you want to share anything about that. Definitely. Uh, I think one of the sort of common end denominators is inflammation, which is Mm -hmm. uh, going to increase risk for problems with glucose management. Um, But sleep apnea uh, has a number of negative effects on health. It increases your uh, hormone ghrelin, which is an appetite stimulant. It reduces leptin, which is another hormone that causes satiety. So if your ghrelin is up and hormone and your hormone leptin is down, it's a double whammy for weight gain, which increases risk for sleep apnea. Um, sleep apnea also, um, makes you crave high fat, high sugar, carbohydrate laden foods, snack foods, if you will, uh, that tends to increase your, um, blood sugar and it interferes with uh, glucose and insulin metabolism. So it's shown that even in healthy people, a night of compromised sleep will make them insulin resistant one night. That's amazing. Cause you know, a lot of people talk about Alzheimer's as type three diabetes. And if there's lack of sleep and insulin resistance goes up, That's creating the groundwork for a lot of other problematic situations. That's fascinating to know. Thank you for sharing that and kind of connecting the dots. Um, What are some of the sleep conditions that are common among people with Alzheimer's disease? I want to say that insomnia is one of the most common things that I see. Um, And this can have a number of factors feeding into the end result of insomnia. So reduced physical activity during the day, not getting enough light exposure, having uh, shifting sleep schedules, not enough social stimulation, all of these things um, that I have just listed increase the signal for wakefulness. And if you don't have a strong signal for wakefulness, then there's no balance with a strong signal for sleep. So people who have Alzheimer's disease end up in a situation where they're never quite awake and never quite asleep. Both, both situations are diluted. They can wake up, um, and have, uh, reactions to shadows on the walls. They can have, um, the need to pace that further exacerbate the insomnia. And that can be really problematic in a caregiver home or when falls are a risk for the person affected with Alzheimer's. It's so clear how you're connecting the dots. Thank you very much as a physician for pointing that out. Um, you know, I'm curious too, this is a little aside, but in our cranial sacral world and others, there's been a lot of research on something called this lymphatic system in the brain. And it turns out, at least what most experts say is that the lymphatic system does about 60% of its work during sleep. Mm-hmm. It actually, there's a wave of uh, vascular uh, activity. And that actually is a precursor to a wave of cerebrospinal fluid draining the brain. So I don't know if you've seen some of the research on that from, uh, Boston university, but it's kind of really interesting. They show graphs that those two things happen. Yes. Um, I'm familiar with this work and it's really demonstrating a fundamental mechanism that occurs during sleep, mostly during non-REM three sleep, which is Uh the first half of the night. 
That's amazing. That's really, really interesting. So you can see, once again, how there's all these interactive pieces that occur. Um, now, let's also mention our caregivers, because we've spoken about that. Those who take care of their loved ones. What happens when their sleep is impacted and how does this affect the relationship with their loved ones? Yeah, I, I think this is a really important point for anybody who cares for their parents, cares for children, um, because if if you're in that position where there's demands on your time and it's an opportunity really to um, provide empathy and support for your loved one, the lack of sleep is going to interfere with that. When a person is sleep deprived, the negativity that our brains are sort of biased toward gets unmasked. And from that comes impatience, irritability, and a reduced ability to solve problems or be creative in different situations. And this can put a strain on the relationship between the caregiver and the loved one that they're caring for. So I really want to make a plea to anyone who's in that position of having a loved one in their home that they're caring for with any type of dementia, they need to make sure that their own sleep is of high quality and protected so that they can function at their top level. Yeah, and I think you have some re uh, support resources for that to support caregivers as well, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I actually wrote an ebook um, about the importance of sleep, especially in the context of Alzheimer's disease. And it's something that I like to share both from the perspective of the one who's diagnosed, but also for the caregiver to help them with, you know, really actionable tips that they can use to preserve their sleep. And I think we'll share that on the website so people can get access to that. And speaking of actionable tips, uh, first of all, there's two tiers to this. For people that are not in the Alzheimer's space, but they're still concerned, they're older and they wanna get uh, optimal sleep. Do you have any tips for what's useful for them just to keep them in a more protective uh, role? Definitely. And I wanna commend anybody who has this um, priority to improve their sleep because it's, it's one of the best things you can do for your health. It's free. It's side effect free. And, you know, when it comes to being a human being, we want to eat, we want to move and we want to sleep. So all of mm. these things are priorities. Um, I think that if you're interested in sleep optimization, one of the best things you can do is look at your relationship with sleep. Um, relationships require trustworthiness, they require being punctual, and they require activities that support uh, the other um, part of the relationship. So for sleep, you want to make sure you're waking up at the same time uh, in the morning. That morning wake-up time is what helps your brain to uh, reset and adjust so that 16 hours later, you'll be ready to fall asleep. If you can get bright light exposure, preferably sunlight into your eyes within that first hour of waking up, you're really accentuating that setting of your biological clock. And it's important for mood and concentration during the day. If you pair that with exercise, such as taking a brisk walk outside, that really helps your brain to have an ideal start to the day. Plus it's cooler as we know in the summer. To make, yeah. a, make a nice walk in the morning. 
Yeah. It, I mean, if you can enjoy it, that's, that's just yeah. gravy. Well, and absolutely. There's, there's other research uh, that we're looking at um, in the cranial sacral frame. There's something called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Mm-hmm. It's in the hippocampus and there's a certain number of cells, not a lot, that are sensitive to light and dark. So somehow our circadian rhythm may be triggering the way our cells respond and oscillate and all our systems in our body build with that. So it's kind of interesting that emerging science is looking at some of those relationships as well in terms of just how we register light. Um, and I, ha- I have to ask you just one follow-up question. I know this is a common thing. Some people have a little trouble getting settled down to get to sleep. Mm-hmm. Just normal. And I wondered if you had any tips for people around that. Yes, I, I would start back a few hours from bedtime if you're somebody that has some degree of agitation or monkey mind at night when your thoughts mm-hmm. are kind of pinballing. Um, really take a look at your daytime activities. Uh, see if if more exercise is in order. Uh, see if more social ac- uh, activation or uh, timing the timing of your meals could be a factor having sort of trust that you'll fall asleep at night is a little bit like a symphony with different instruments that need to come Mm -hmm. in at different parts uh, of your day in order to make good music at night. So, you know, take a look at things that will provide that contrast, wake versus sleep and accentuate those activities. Then at night, when it's time to wind down, really wind down. That Mm -hmm. means you step away from your electronics. I like to tell people your dreams are not in your phone. So (laughs) try to get, put the phone down. Um, You might write, you might engage in a creative activity. You might do something physically relaxing, like stretching, uh, doing some yoga or getting into a warm to hot bath to just help your body and your brain settle. And if you repeat this night after night, what you're doing is you're teaching your brain that this is the way the plane lands. You're engaging in these activities to sort of wind down over the evening and prepare for sleep. And your brain will thank you by shortening up the time it takes you to actually fall asleep and greatly reduce the agitation that uh, you might experience otherwise. Oh, this is some excellent tips. Uh, and one other part of this, how can people with Alzheimer's uh, or some aspect of it improve their sleep? I think if a person is diagnosed with Alzheimer's, excuse me, a person, if a person is diagnosed with Alzheimer's, then they really need to take more steps to accentuate that wake sleep contrast. So again, uh, light exposure in the morning and even during the day lots of physical activity during the day, social interactions and regular meal times can all signal the brain it's time to be awake. And that sort of routine helps a person with memory problems to feel more assured, more secure um, in their daily life so that they can get to sleep. Uh, One other bonus question. And a lot more people are getting these aura rings. You know, I think you have one. Yes. How does that help you monitor and 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 look at your sleep? Does that give you information that's useful to know the efficacy of your sleep and all? I I would like to say just a, a word of caution for any wearable device. Okay, that, good. 
the the marketing claims for these devices are very strong but at this time they are okay i would say maybe fine not good not great mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. sleep staging what they are good at identifying is when sleep onset occurred and when sleep offset or waking occurred and i like it also that they uh, sort of elevate sleep as something to pay attention to and to change your behavior if you want to improve that so the sleep onset sleep offset will tell you approximately how much sleep you got but one night is not going to blow my hair back if if there's any abnormality yeah, right. it's the pattern of things that i would be looking for so you're measuring night after night after night to get more familiar with how you are responding uh, with your sleep. Dr. Audrey Wells, thank you so much for joining us here at the Alzheimer's World Summit. You're very welcome, Michael, my pleasure.